Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Gong Gringers by Hassan Vokeen. It was in August 1913 that I was connected with a Russo-Asian trading company and found it necessary to take a tiresome journey into southern Mongolia. After crossing the Siberian border, we travelled not by camel but by horse, camping in the open and dining on canned foods and tea. Just as bored, if not more so than I, were my travelling companions, Mr. Paul Carrican, also a member of the trading company, Mr. Jim Howell, an American journalist, and the two guides. But when we arranged a stop at Corbin Ling, the seat of a rich Mongolian monastery, we were unconsciously preparing for one of those weird experiences which can happen only in the East. With the sunset behind us, on the third evening we came in sight of the city of monks, the low walls appearing dark red in the fading light, the two ancient towers pointing silently into the sky. It seemed to vibrate a silence which put a death-like spell over the whole surrounding desert. We felt its silence as something real, something hanging over it. Our party stopped, and the guides spoke wonderingly to each other. Why were the gates still closed? It was the custom when travellers approached the city to open the gates and send out an escort to meet them at a point exactly fifty tashur from the walls. Gobel Dunn, our translator, turned to us. His Mongolian mask bore an expression half of wonder, half of fear. This very bad thing. Always see us when we cross that hill, he said, pointing to the slope back of us, where the sun was now disappearing. Also time for sunset gong. Maybe better go back. Perhaps they are having a festival and have not seen us, suggested the American. No, no, always have sunset gong, always, always. If sunset gong not ring, city be destroyed by thirty-seven demons. If no sunset gong, everybody dead. Again we turned to the silent city. Its walls now dim and black, its gates still mockingly closed. It struck the same note in our souls as does the sight of a skull uncovered in a field. The guide's suggestion was possible in the east, where diseases are fought with painted dragons and the chanting of rituals. But at that moment our bodies grew tense, and even our horses seemed to withhold their movements. There had come to us the faint tap of a bell from one of those towers. Then again it sounded, hesitantly, as if the hammer were but laid on its edge. No one breathed as we waited for the third stroke, expecting it to be louder. But what we heard was not the deep call of a gong. It was a wail, and screaming cries of pain, echoing over the desert, and again from the city all was silence. Our two guides turned their horses around. Their faces were a sickly oriental yellow. Their eyes stared toward the west, where there were still a few streaks of light. "'We no go farther,' said Gobel Dunn. "'Return, quick!' Carrican and I looked questioningly at each other. The American laughed. "'Why go back just because you hear somebody yelling?' Let's go see what it's all about. But the Mongolians were already mounting the hill in back of us. Karakan spoke to me in Russian. What do you think, friend? I shrugged my shoulders. Me shiver. And we both found ourselves headed for the gate of the monastery, following the American. In front of the gate there was a great pile of white objects, which appeared at first to be stones. But as we neared them we saw clearly that they were the bleached bones of human beings left there for the vultures. A heavy wooden box, braced with iron bands and fastened by an iron chain, stood in their midst. Suddenly, 
a hand thrust from a hole in the side shook the chain, and words were cried out in Mongolian. It was a llama, condemned to die of starvation. The walls of the city were made of logs, and appeared much like the barricades made by the colonists in settling America. Behind and above them we could see the towers and buildings, made of mud at the base, and topped with gaily painted wooden cupolas. Howell had dismounted, and finding the gates unfastened, pushed them open. We slipped in noiselessly, and stood against the wall. It was not a dead city that we found. Until we grew accustomed to the place, our impressions were of torches, strange smells, and a weird chant. Then, grouped at the foot of one of the towers, we saw a motionless crowd of yellow-robed llamas. Three carried torches, the red lights of which fell on faces, awestruck, terrorized, as ghastly Mongol masks as the Orient knows. In the centre of the crowd stood a tall man, the chief llama, with a brass hat and a red silk robe, the sleeves each a foot too long. From him came the chanting. We wondered if we dared make our presence known. Then Karakan, who had picked up a few words of Mongolian from the guides, spoke. Mendu, Isunogoi, greetings, we are friends. Instantly, every face was turned in our direction, some glowering, some fearful, some expressionless. The silk-robed lama stepped up to us, and bowed. Kubu Wui, So Lupin, Mukai? Karakan shook his head and tried Chinese. The lama grinned. In a few minutes, Karakan turned to us. Fen Shou Tai, chief lama, wishes to say that he is the most unhappy man in the world to think that we were not welcomed to his humble monastery. But, he says, this is the most unfortunate temple in all Mongolia, and if we had not entered the gates, he would have advised us to pass on. Follow him. The chief lama had motioned the gaping group aside, and led the way to the foot of the tower. Then we saw what had caused the alarm. At our feet the lights of the torches fell upon a ghastly figure. It lay in a dark red pool, the yellow robe streaked with blood, the arms stretched out, the fingers clutching a small iron hammer, the face so disfigured and blood-stained as to be unrecognizable. Through Karakan, the lama spoke again. Since the day of the fire-dragon, four weeks ago, what you see here has happened at every ringing of the sunset gong. Priest Yu Yang was the first, and since then twenty-six others have been sacrificed to save our weak city from the vengeance of the thirty-seven devil-gods. Only two strokes of the bell are given, and the trembling ringer is thrown from the balcony, his face and hands mysteriously torn and bleeding, to be crushed to death at the bottom of the tower. Tomorrow, lots will be drawn to choose a new ringer, and since you have entered our gates, you will be asked to join in the drawing. The most worthy fire-dragon has been angered, and his humble servants must appease him. Fen Shou cracked his fan on the palm of his hand. Two lamas stepped up to him. Nayom Chu Yong. They picked up their dead comrade and carried him through the gate. He would be laid on the pile of bones outside, and by sunrise his would be picked as clean as the others. The harsh call of a bird floated down to us from above. It was a vulture, already impatient for the feast. The other lamas filed out of the court, three taking our horses and our guns. Our party followed the swishing silk robes of the chief, as he led us to a dark, bad-smelling compartment for sleeping, next to his own. There we threw ourselves on the straw-covered floor, and so exhausted were we, that even the thought of the ghastly lottery plan for tomorrow could not keep us awake. 
In the morning, we were conducted to a larger compartment, where the whole armissary was assembled to eat. There had already been some religious ceremony, accompanied by the blowing of longhorn trumpets. It was this which had awakened us. The meal consisted solely of mutton stew served on large brass platters. The method of eating it was to hold a large piece in the mouth with the left hand, and with a knife in the right hand cut it off close to the lips. It was washed down with draughts of arak and kumis. After the meal was over, Fenshou spoke again to Karakan in Chinese. He says that if we do not attempt to leave the inner court, we will be left free to do as we please, Karakan told us. If there is anything among our luggage that we would like to have, they will be glad to get it for us. I've ordered my cigarettes. Do you want anything? Ask them for my pipe and plenty of tobacco, said Howell. But it was not with free hearts that we spent that day, knowing that at sunset one of us or one of our captors would be sent to that sacrifice, whose result we had seen last night. Even if it were not one of our own party, we had no desire to see another man climb that dark tower— to hear again those screams of horror, or to see that bleeding figure come tumbling down to crush itself on the floor. The worst of it, said Howell, is not knowing what's really up there. It may be sheer fright that has killed them all. Carrican lit a cigarette. Sheer fright, Howell, will not tear a man's eyes out. There was no luncheon, and the second meal of the day, which was served about five o'clock, was eaten very sparingly. The vultures could already be seen collecting on the cupolas and peaks of the buildings. One giant one, almost the size of a man, had been preening himself on the peak of the gong tower all the afternoon, and eyeing us mockingly. With his bald head and neck showing the discoloured flesh, he was hideous, and had also attracted the attention of the Mongols, who called him Shabu Khan, the Bald King. As the sun began to get low, the chief lama majestically entered the court. He was followed by two of his satellites, one carrying a small-mouthed brass jar, the other holding a tray of smooth white pebbles. These stones, one of which had been painted red, were counted into the jar to equal the number of men present, and vigorously shaken up by each lama. Then the drawing began. The lamas drew first, some with fear in their eyes, some with no more expression than if the stones had been sunflower seeds or sweetmeats. Our party was at first uninterested. Out of eighty-seven lamas, it was most probable that one of their party would get the red stone. But more than half of them had drawn, yet the red stone had not appeared. Carrican's expression began to grow worried, and he puffed harder at his cigarettes. The drawing went on. We eyed each lama as if we willed with all the power of our minds that he draw out that— fatal painted stone. Now there were but three, and Fen Shou left to draw. We began to suspect a trick, but even the lamas were anxious now. A big fat one, who had been continually fumbling with the blue cord which belted him around the waist, put his hand into the jar, and beads of perspiration showed all over his face. Fearfully, he looked at his draw. White! He sank back, thankfully, among his comrades. Another white one came out, a third. Fenshou was bowing and motioning to us. Karakan spoke to him in Chinese. He smiled maliciously, and shook his head. He says the chief lama never draws, gasped Karakan harshly. Now it was clear why the old devil submitted so placidly to the outrages of an angry fire-dragon. For every lama who disappeared into that tower, his coffers were so much the richer. Fenshou was beating his fan nervously against his palm— 
but it would not be a llama this time. There were three stones left in that jar, and one of them was red. Shabu Khan looked pleased in contemplation of a change in diet. Fen Shou was bowing again and motioning to the jar. Howell stepped up to the jar, all on tiptoe. His eyes were haggard as he felt in the bottom for one of the three remaining stones. He drew it out. It was red. He tottered against the wall, but when we reached him to support him, there was a grim smile on his lips. Fen Shou nervously upturned the jar. Two small round white stones dropped out. He nodded wisely and motioned with his fan that we might see them. It was not a trick, perhaps, but it was ghastly luck. Howell, his mouth still firm, asked through Karakan if he might take with him his pistol and his flashlight. Fen Shou frowned, then bowing with another grin. You may have them, he said, but they will be useless. Alama was dispatched for them. Evidently Fen Shou really believed in the fire-dragon, which was so obligingly filling his coffers with the gold of his followers. The whole party filed into the outer court, the lamas, at their chief's order, lining themselves against the gate to prevent our escape. Karakan and I stood in the middle of the court. Fen Shou, with two torch-bearers, waited at the foot of the tower. Howl shook hands with us, and stepped over to them. He was brave enough to laugh at his costume which consisted of a yellow robe, a small red hat, and the hammer, which was fastened about his neck by a red cord. These were put on him by two of the lamas, while Fen Shou chanted some ritual. Then, with his flashlight in one hand and his pistol in the other, he entered the tower. How soon, I wondered, will that yellow Mongol robe be streaked with iron blood? The sky was black, but there were still some red streaks in the west, and the red torches of the Mongols lit up the court. I looked up at the gong tower. It seemed to be dripping with blood. Shabu Khan, the giant vulture, had disappeared. Going up the centre of the tower was a rough wooden ladder. Howell grasped this and began to climb, gripping his pistol and flashlight tightly. Even Fen Shou's face was worn and anxious as he saw him vanish into that black hole. It was another sacrifice to the fire-dragon— but it would mean nothing to Fen Shou. The wily chief would get nothing from Howell's luggage to equal the gold of his rich followers. Partway up the mud base of the tower there was an opening. We saw him slowly pass it. When he reached the top, it would be necessary for him to balance himself on an upper rung of the ladder, and reach up with a hammer to the gongs, which were in the very peak of the tower. The whole court held its breath as one body. We could not see, but we would hear what happened. As yet, there had been no sound. What was happening in the tower? Howell was approaching the top. With his flashlight he was searching the dark corners of the cupola. It revealed nothing, yet he had an uncanny sense that he was not alone there. He had almost reached the top of the ladder. Was it safe to try to stand on the topmost rung? It would be an uncertain foothold. He braced himself firmly between the ladder and the wall— and determined to go no farther until he was sure of himself. Then suddenly there was a wild, weird scream, and with a furious beating and flapping and tearing of claws, the thing, he knew not what it was, had pounced upon him. He covered his face with his arms, and the creature tore at them and made shreds of the Mongol cloak. In another minute he would have lost his hold and have gone the way of the llamas before him. Frantically he pulled the trigger of his gun— Something fell the length of the tower and beat itself on the ground at our feet. 
It was Shabu Khan, a red hole in his breast, his great wings spread wide on the ground, his malicious, hating eyes now lifeless. What must have been Chinese jazz was being played on the gongs, and in a minute Howell had slipped down the ladder and stood before us. One hand was bleeding where the vulture had torn it, and his robe was in shreds. "'There's your fire-dragon,' he said, as Fen Shou stupidly examined the vulture. "'And now you can tell your thirty-seven devil-gods to chase themselves.' The angry god who had killed so many llamas was only a crafty vulture. Hello, ladies and gents. Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links.